mic check for Cat Radio Cafe. Uh, testing. Testing. Stay tuned for Cat Radio Cafe Sunday night at 11 on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. The Displaced Playwright on Sunday, November 24th. We are joined by artist Peter McGowell on his memoir, I've Seen the Future and I'm Not Going, the art scene in downtown New York in the 1980s. And more poems from the late Brooklyn poet, Harvey Shapiro. And in the next hour of Cat Radio Cafe... A panel discussion on snobbery. Sunday night at 11 on WBAI Cat Radio Cafe. And remember our slogan... The cats like snobs. If they look like fish. Good evening and welcome to City Watch, a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural cultural issues here in New York City. You are just listening to Nando at Con Sabor Latino, and I'm happy you're with us here on WBAI 99.5 FM this evening. I've been with WBAI now for about a year and a half, and so I'm one of the newbies here, one of the newcomers, as some people might say. <laughs> I've been really proud to join some longtime voices like Nando uh, on the progressive front, people who've been also on the front lines throughout October working tirelessly to bring back our local programming here on BAI. And as many of you longtime listeners know, or if you're a new listener, just want to let you know, most of us are volunteers. We give our time. We give our money as BAI buddies because we want to keep WBAI running. Uh, we are non-commercial, non-corporate community radio. So if you're at home or you were just angry or frustrated about how this rogue faction of Pacifica took our local programming off the air for a month, I really would like you to show your support for WBAI programming now that our local programming is back. It's very important to the hosts here, to the producers, to the many volunteers that are making WBAI what it is today and what it has been for the last 60 years. So there's a pledge line. I'm, I'm looking to get 10 BAI buddies in the name of this show. Now, they don't all have to happen during this one hour, but it would be wonderful if I could get 10 BAI buddies in the name of City Watch. You can go online to give to WBAI.org. That's our pledge line. Give to WBAI.org. And you also can text WBAI to 41444. That's WBAI to the number 41444. Uh, and we also have a pledge line if you prefer to just call. Uh, if you're sitting at home in this horrible weather, this well, I almost use a curse word, in this uh, nasty weather today, and BAI has been on all day in the afternoon while you sat at home with a nice cup of tea, uh, it would be wonderful if you could just take a moment and call 516-620-3602. Now, I do want to note 
that what I have done, if you become a BAI buddy in the name of City Watches, I've lined up 10 copies of a book called Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War. And you want to mention when you become a BAI buddy in the name of City Watch, you want to mention this book by New Village Press. We had uh, one of the co-editors, Ron Carver, on several weeks ago on our first uh, episode back uh, after our local programming returned. Uh, and he was fantastic and gave some great insight into what it took to compile this book, which has a lot of good images and text and essays from a number of individuals who had resisted the Vietnam War. Again, we have 10 copies of this book for you if you become a BAI buddy. And what is a BAI buddy? Well, Max Schmidt, who's with me and I, we both know that by being a BAI buddy, it costs 5 10 $20 a month. You're just giving a sustaining contribution on, on your credit card. Uh, that's what I do. Uh, you know, and, and it helps keep our local programming going. Right? Well, that's right. Can we do it for as low as five? I thought they wanted ten and up. Well, I prefer ten. Yes, I'm hoping yes. ten. I don't know. Five, you know, why not just pledge 60 bucks if you're only going to get five a month? But, you know, I guess I guess we can go that low. I mean, think about it. If it's $10 a month, that's $120 a year. But $10 a month will help keep our shows going, and that's very, really important. And they'll barely notice when yeah. it's removed from their credit card and or bank account. Yeah, I, honestly, I don't even, I mean, if I see that it shows up on my credit card, it makes me feel good each month that I know that I've done this to support the station that I, that I feel like I'm a part of now, part of this family. Do you know how many buddies you have so far? I don't offhand. Have you seen the count? I don't offhand. Oh. I'm hoping that I can get 10 in the name of this show. We've been This show, prior to even me getting here, has been on for a number of years. Oh, yeah. I was just one of the co-hosts, and unfortunately, Baca moved to D.C., oh, and Joel is occupied with his nonprofit, and Edwina got elected uh, <laughs> uh, to, as public administrator on Staten Island. So, uh, so you're left holding the bag? I'm left holding the bag, but uh, what I love is on this show, I'm able to bring up a diverse... Uh, uh, range of voices and also address topics that I know our listeners want to talk about. I mean, all through September, we talked about climate change. It was incredibly, uh, incredibly engaging discussion with a number of experts. And so, I must say, you've been around and have a lot of connections. <laughs> you get the biggies. It's you know, we we right before a few weeks before we had Scott Strang, uh, we lost our local programming for that month. Uh, we had Scott Stringer, uh, the uh, uh, city controller, in here taking calls from listeners, and Ruben and, Diaz Jr. was lined up, and now he's going to happen now that we're back, or they're rescheduling And, and Thursday, you had former governor... We had David Patterson call in uh, this uh, past Thursday, and as always, he was insightful and engaging. Uh, and he actually weighed in, and that's what I'm going to use as a segue to our guest today. Uh, he actually weighed in uh, on what he thought Mike Bloomberg's uh, chances would be if Mike Bloomberg were to declare that he's running for president. And in fact, he's now done so. That is what has happened today. And our Celeste uh, Katz Marston is going to be giving us a news update a little uh, later in our show today. And uh, I know she's likely going to be talking about that as our as our big news. Uh, but when Bloomberg was in office, uh, you know, housing, affordable housing uh, was a significant issue and among many other issues. So it's one of the topics we're going to talk about with our first guest who's in studio and been patiently sitting next to me, waiting for me to get to him. Matthew Sherman is a senior editor, and he focuses on urban development at WNYC Radio. He's written for the New York Observer, Fortune, Village Voice. He has a new book out that I just completed this week called Newcomers, Gentrification and Its Discontents, published by University of Chicago Press, Chicago's his hometown. Uh, and it it looks at why gentrification is, has been such a flashpoint, and he draws some great uh, descriptive descriptive examples from Brooklyn, Chicago, and San Francisco about whether uh, gentrification threatens the stability of urban neighborhoods. Matthew, welcome to WBAI. Thanks so much, Jeff. Glad and, to be here. And as much as you are at a, I won't even say it's a competing radio station because I listen to WNYC and as we talked about, I've got some uh, good friends there. Uh, I love WNYC radio and so I'm glad that you're able to cross the river to come over to uh, BAI today. Very glad to be here. More radio, the better is what I think. And we completely agree with you here at BAI. So uh, I want to just talk a little about uh, the origins of this book. First, or even the topic, how did you get interested in covering housing issues? 
Uh, I got interested in covering housing. I grew up in Chicago, and Chicago, in some ways, is all about housing. Uh, you see very clear racial segregation patterns based on housing. You see the quality of schools based on housing. When I went to journalism school at Medill, which is at Northwestern University, I knew I wanted to cover housing. Uh, and actually, it was interesting because I was right there when the head of the CHA, the Chicago Housing Authority, was first toying with this idea uh, called, uh, well, basically, we're of tearing down all of the public housing complexes there, the high-rises, and integrating them with, uh, with different income levels. And that plays a role in my book. Um, but for a long time, I sort of saw the, the underside of cities. I saw cities, especially growing up on the south side of Chicago, or the home of the White Sox, uh, <clears throat> <laughs> knew, knew a lot about rooting for the underdog, uh, and my, do- my dad actually was always into rooting for the underdog, whoever it might be. We had lots of chances on the south side of Chicago to root for the White Sox, uh, and cities at that time were sort of the underdog, and everywhere I went, it seemed like suburbia was on the rise. Uh, many years later, after journalism school, I ended up in New London, Connecticut, a seaside town. You may have seen it if you take an Amtrak on the way to Boston from here. And New London was this struggling little former whaling city, and it was always trying one economic development scheme after another, and nothing seemed to work. And then I came to New York City in 1998, and it was the complete opposite. New York City was just bursting with with prosperity, with money, with college-educated people. Everyone had a New Yorker subscription and would carry it on the subway to work. And this was such a, a, a drastic change. Of course, I experienced gentrification up close as I tried to find an apartment that first uh, that that first month or two that I was here. And what neighborhoods were actually, you looking at? I was looking. I ended up in Park Slope. Actually, I was like right right around here in in um, in, in Brooklyn, looking uh, Borham Hill, Cobble Hill, Park Slope, Prospect Heights, uh, Brooklyn Heights, etc. Ended up in Park Slope, uh, and. It's just never escaped me this this great paradox of uh, this great uh, American migration to the suburbs, at least among the upper middle income or upper income white people really is what we're talking about, uh, you know, migrating to the suburbs uh, after the war, after World War II, and then suddenly now everyone seems to be coming on in into the city. And just full of paradoxes and and benefits and and trade offs and and so there's just a lot to think about. And you know there is a lot to think about, especially when it comes to gentrification. So we should uh, first. I want to let our listeners know that uh, in about ten minutes you can start calling in to talk with Matthew to offer your opinion on gentrification. Uh, the number to call is two one two two zero. Two zero nine two eight seven seven. That's two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. I almost said the wrong number there. I wondered who was going to get all those phone calls at home by accident. Two zero nine two eight seven seven. That's a two one two number. Uh, gentrification itself. How do you define it? I define it as the process by which a neighborhood goes from being low income to high income, or or a little bit under the average for the area to a little bit over, let's say. And I actually look statistically at the entire metropolitan region, and and when figuring out the census data and what have you, and the reason. Reason is that you know back in nineteen in the nineteen fifties, let's say, the suburbs were much more affluent than the city was, and now we are beginning to see some of that turnaround. So you really have to compare uh, how one neighborhood stands, not just vis-a-vis the whole city, but actually vis-a-vis the whole metropolitan region. And uh, in one of the pieces I had read, uh, you had noted that even the term gentrification was coined uh, not in the United States. Can you talk a little about that? Yes, it was coined in 1964 uh, in London. Uh, Ruth Glass, uh, is that right? Yep, Ruth Glass. I jotted (laughs) it down. Ruth Glass, sociologist, 1964. Somehow sounds wrong coming (laughs) off my tongue. But Ruth Glass, who is a a German-British sociologist, who was actually in 
early 1960s, seeing this happen in in London, many of the working class areas of London uh, becoming uh, bourgeois, as it were, back then. And she sort of saw it also as sort of this is, on the one hand, uh, uh, you know, sort of a surprising uh, thing to happen, uh, but also at some times, at some point in the future, she she predicted it would be an embarras de richesse, I think. That's part of my French. Oh, that I won't uh, know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> An embarrassment of riches, and that essentially uh, the wealthy people would start to push out low-income people who had been living in these neighborhoods previously. Um, and when the backlash began here in the United States, you point out that that was about a decade uh, after this term, or this became this was raised in London. What kind of prompted that backlash? What were the circumstances that led to gentrification being, in many quarters, such a negative word? Right. Well, first of all, I just want to point out that all this is happening probably much earlier than a lot of people ever think of gentrification as having started. We we sort of. Feel, I, I sort of feel like we rediscover gentrification every 10 years or so and suddenly realize it's happening in our neighborhoods. Uh, whereas, indeed, it was, it was evident in London in the 1960s. I go back to the 1950s, and you could arguably go back even earlier than that if you want to do that. Uh, but by the 1970s, right around 1973, you had the Arab oil embargo, gasoline was expensive, people also inflation was very high so mortgage rates were very high so this whole idea of moving out to the suburbs having longer commutes was beginning to seem somewhat um uh not quite as attractive as it, as it used to be and so people really began in large numbers uh again i mean i'm sort of simplifying here we're really just talking about uh upper middle income white people um and and yet they are like it or not a powerful force in how cities have been shaped over the past 100 years uh, they began moving back into these central city neighborhoods and, and renovating uh, brownstones, apartments, et cetera, et cetera. And when that happened, uh, people who had been living there for a long time and their advocates uh, began to to react. Uh, you saw a lot of this in the African-American press, actually. Uh, a great article I mentioned in an Ebony magazine that notes, for example, how what is it? The the slave masters in Savannah, Georgia, were were trading places with the former slaves there, and they saw it as sort of a new um, uh, a, a new invasion, um, a new um, um, imperialism almost that was going on in these African American neighborhoods. Yeah, there was one other. Uh, I'm looking for the quote that I had jotted down because I had a similar reaction when uh, reading some of the pieces about the book as well uh, about the uh, the racial uh, element of this. Uh, I'm just trying to look for it here. Of course, I'm not finding it right in front of me right now, but we will come back to that. You are listening to WBAI City Watch. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I'm talking with Matthew Sherman, author of Newcomers, Gentrification and Its Discontents, published by University of Chicago Press. The phone lines are open this hour for you to give a call if you would like to offer your opinion on gentrification, what you think uh, – um, you know, uh, you, how you feel this has affected communities, not just here in the city, but across the country. Our number is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. What can you learn? Well, actually, you know, I'll come back to that. I want to ask about New York City, for instance. You talk about, you mentioned Park Slope before, but in the book, early chapter starts off talking about the transformation of Brooklyn Heights. Talk a little about that. Right. I start the story in Brooklyn Heights for a few reasons. One is that you saw there a real self-consciousness. These these people, they call themselves young marrieds. Uh, that, that a lot of people in, in journalism, actually, advertising, lawyers, teachers, social workers even, who moved to Brooklyn Heights in part because Greenwich Village was becoming too expensive. And they uh, saw themselves as rejecting the conformity of the suburbs. Uh, they didn't want to do that. Their parents had done that to some extent. Uh, they liked the vitality. They liked the diversity. They liked the affordability. It was it was it was less expensive to live in Brooklyn Heights than than to live in in other places like Hastings on Hudson or, or Garden City, which is where their peers were going. Uh, and they also disliked urban renewal, the practice of 
you know, bulldozing. Robert Moses was the was the urban renewal master here in, in New York City. Uh, he he got money from the federal government basically to bulldoze uh, what he called slums and put up uh, large blocks of housing. Lincoln Center was a was was an urban re- renewal project. The Washington Square South uh, apartment building was an urban renewal project, and then Cadman Plaza in. Brooklyn Heights was the one that these young marrieds were fighting against. And they didn't entirely um, defeat that, but they had a the, an attitude that instead of the city having a, a, a scar that had to be removed the way that Robert Moses did, you know, bulldoze the slums, they really thought that cities could heal themselves in or, an organic way. And of course, Jane Jacobs uh, the urbanist, the the author of uh, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, uh, was emerging just at that time as an activist in Greenwich Village fighting Robert no- Moses and the Crosstown, the Lower Manhattan Expressway, excuse me. Uh, and she also sort of e- expressed this view as well. So, and in a way, if you think about it, that's, you know, I don't want to call Jane Jacobs a gentr- gentrifier or anything like that, but that sort of idea that, that let's not um, let's not bulldoze our cities. Let's just renovate them and rehabilitate them and let them sort of come whole again on their own. That is, in many ways, what gentrification has become. And you chronicle how competing neighborhood associations faced off over uh, over renewal in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, you know, it's you know, I, I think of you know when you move to a community, you know you you get into that community you're a newcomer but then you know when others later on are trying to move in or there's going to be a change then you're resisting that no this is how i want to preserve the community i moved into talk about the 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 competition uh or conflict between these uh neighborhood associations right well there was the brooklyn heights association which had been established a long time ago of course brooklyn heights uh, was once a very elegant neighborhood. Of course, now it is again, once again, but uh, built largely in the 19th century. And around 1910 was when the Brooklyn Heights Association came about. And then, oddly enough, with the trolley car and the Brooklyn Bridge opening and more and more people moving further and further out into Brooklyn and Long Island, uh, Brooklyn Heights itself, the these brownstones there were divided up into rooming houses. A lot of uh, single people moved in there, workers for the Navy Yard, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, and it became less desirable. Uh, and um, uh, the Brooklyn Heights Association sort of had this attitude of very much embraced Robert Moses and embraced this Cadman Plaza plan because they wanted to get rid of the the um, the slum-like or the less desirable housing that was along one edge of the neighborhood and sort of pretty it up and bring in sort of higher income people in these modern apartment buildings. Uh, and then this new group of young marrieds came up with a competing group called the Community Conservation and Improvement Council. And eventually they merged with Brooklyn Heights Association and then figuring that, you know, it's better to be with with where the power is in in the world, in the neighborhood. Very well-connected people in the Brooklyn Heights Association at that time. Uh, And then a few years later, there was another group, the North Brooklyn Heights group, and they wanted an even more grassroots type of of uh, development to happen, renovation to happen in that northeast corner of Brooklyn Heights as well. And what ended up happening was was sort of a compromise. The Cabin Plaza we know today is is basically a compromise. And you know, I'm someone who often looks at things a little simplistically. So I saw, okay, gentrification is like displacement. It's displacement. But you kind of you you explain why there's a difference. Displacement is is different uh you know uh, so can you just kind of draw that distinction for us yeah well that's that's really a, a good question and that's really surprising for me to have found out as well but in any neighborhood about 20 percent of the population sort of turns over in any sort of given year like moves out believe it or not and you don't really notice it you know maybe they get people get married or people um, have children they need a bigger place or maybe they get divorced or maybe they die etc and so they move out of the neighborhood or at least they move within the neighborhood let's say and um 
so what happens often is neighborhoods can change in, in one of two ways. When those people move out of the neighborhood, there could be a new set of people who come in, a wealthier group, let's say, uh, a whiter group perhaps, um, and take those places. And and these people, however, the, the this isn't considered displacement. It's called succession. Displacement is when you are forced from your apartment because the landlord has increased the rent to such a degree that you cannot pay it. Or they harass you out of it or some sort of skullduggery, let's say. Uh, and it's not really your choice to move out of your apartment. Um, and so you often see turnover, ethnic, uh, racial, religious, income-based ter- ter- turnover in neighborhoods, but that's not necessarily due to displacement. It could be a, a more gradual type of succession. It's still gentrification because uh, your neighborhood as a whole is moving from poor to wealthy, uh, but it's less uh, less aggressive, let's say, uh, sort of process that's going on. And, and so that brings me to the, the – wonderful example that you cite over a number of pages, which was just so frustrating to me, which was the case of Catalina Hidalgo, uh, which just got me very angry. And one of the things I promised to do after this show was to go back and just Google and search for all of the clips about the landlord. Can you talk about Catalina Hidalgo? Uh, I had jotted down that she grew up in uh, Greenpoint. She moved to an apartment on Nassau Avenue near her mother's place. Uh, and just explain what happened to her because this is just an incredible example of you know what could happen as a neighborhood changes. Right, Catalina is Latina, and she uh, her mother is from Colombia, and she grew up you know working class. She worked her way through Long Island University. In some ways, she is sort of the dream uh, person, New Yorker by the bootstraps type loved of person. Her loved her neighborhood. She loved her neighborhood, right. She loved Greenpoint. Uh, in the 1980s when she was growing up, there was a mixture of of, uh, of Latinos and uh, Poles, uh, some Asians as well. Uh, never felt really unsafe there. So that's why she liked staying on and living near her mother as, as she grew up and found her own rent-stabilized place. Uh, however, around 2013, and, and this is relevant because it's about eight years after uh, you mentioned Bloomberg before, uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg um, uh, rezoned the Greenwich Williamsburg waterfront, which was very far, far away from where Catalina lived. It's the other side of the neighborhood. That was in the west. This was in the far east. She lived near Newtown Creek. Her landlord started to do a lot of work, a lot of renovation in her building, and she eventually realized that what was happening was this landlord was trying to push her out, basically. And she came home one day and found that uh, the that that the uh, the pipes downstairs, the gas, the electric meters had all been vandalized, and that the city had come and was making everybody move out of the apartment building. And this is like very frustrating and and aggravating because here the the tenants have to bear the weight of uh, a, what eventually turned out to be a crime by the landlord uh, by... Joel, it, Joel Israel. I'm mentioning the name if anyone's going to look this up. Yes, Joel Israel. Uh, and... Um, he, the the Brooklyn district attorney finally proved had actually hired someone to to do this sort of vandalism, uh, basically in order to push out the tenants. And I think that just I don't know in this case exactly, but it's not an unheard of tactic where landlords try to take advantage of of the city process by which they vacate, they actually evict people from these buildings when there are unsafe conditions, even when those unsafe conditions are created by the landlords themselves. And in this case, there was a point 
that you uh, note a discussion where she was invited to come meet with someone who said, this is the amount of money we would we would pay you to move. And she realized that would only last her, what, uh, two years, I think you point out, if she moved to another neighborhood because the values had gone up so much in the, that other neighborhood. Right. And the, very common, of course, uh, under rent uh, regulations that, that the landlords will try to buy out their tenants. In, in this case, Catalina and her uh, co-tenants, her, her fellow tenants in her apartment building, uh, then eventually uh, went to housing court and sued their landlord for this. And the landlord really focused on Catalina. She spoke the best English. She was very knowledgeable about building processes, et cetera. She was very functional, uh, good with the media, et cetera, et cetera. And so the landlord knew if, if, if he picked off Catalina and was able to buy her out, that probably the rest of the tenants would fold as well and their case would disappear. And uh, right, at first he offers her uh, $50,000 and she realizes that, yeah, her, she would use that up very, very quickly because of how high rents had gone in the meantime. Again, I want to remind our listeners, you are listening to City Watch here on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming also at WBAI.org. My guest in studio is Matthew Sherman, author of Newcomers, Gentrification and Its Discontents, published by University of Chicago Press. The phone lines are open. Number is 212-209-2877. Give us a call and let us know your opinion, especially if you're in a neighborhood where you feel uh, that gentrification is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to have a news segment giving you that I've been holding off describing the news of the day because we're going to have that in just a few moments because I, and I'm resisting asking uh, Matthew uh, about uh, Mayor Bloomberg's record on this front until after the segment. So we're going to come to that uh, in just a little while. So uh, and, and as far as Catalina, I'm just real curious just to kind of close the loop on that. Where is she today? Do you- she she moved back into her apartment. They won the case and basically the. The apartment building was wrested uh, out of the Israel's uh, control and into an independent housing administrator who basically p- renovated the building, restored the gas and electric um, uh, functions in the basement, and really made it quite nice. And everyone, and then build the Israels for all this work, and then uh, everyone got to move back in. So. Uh- the other you chose not just New York City, but you looked at San Francisco, you looked at Chicago. Why did you choose certain communities? Because I'm sure there are a number of other cities you could have focused on. Right. I wanted, uh, I wanted a few cities. I wanted to be broad enough so that people could see this is happening in different places, and maybe to get a sense of you know it happens slightly differently in in San Francisco or in Chicago than it does in New York. But I didn't want it to to do too many different examples because it's almost like that would be too redundant and people would just be reading the same story over and over again. They wouldn't go deep enough into one city's history to really understand uh, you know, how San Francisco functions and, and how its history uh, plays into this hype of, of gentrification that we see there now or, or what problems Chicago uh, encounters. So it was sort of choosing you know, enough to uh, create some sort of breadth but not too many to create create to allow for some depth and i'm from chicago as you mentioned i live in new york and have for a long time so i knew those places and then san francisco was also a very uh, obvious option as well just because uh their gentrification is just on steroids well what's so you know what was amusing and yet frustrating a lot of it frustrated me when i you know i was reading about how you know the limited amount of of space in San Francisco for housing, and one of the solutions that developed uh, uh, amid the explosion in jobs in the tech sector uh, were was the, uh, the I'm going to call it the the uh, uh, the, bu- the, the bus shuttles. The, the, shu- Google, the shuttles the Google shuttles sure and the Google sure. shuttles and there was resistance to a uh, to one of the stops. That's right. That's right. The Google shuttles are were in some ways an ingenious employee generated response to this problem, which is that uh, all the jobs are not all of them, but Silicon Valley, uh, you know, is is about forty minutes south of San Francisco. So, and unfortunately, the towns around there have largely single family zoning. They don't want to have lots of people living there. They don't want to become cities. They don't want apartment buildings. Uh, and the sort of young millennial. 
uh, population, many of whom work at places like that, they want to live in San Francisco. They want to live in apartments. They don't want their own you know, ranch house uh, out in, in, um, in Santa Clara County, let's say. Uh, and so this was a, a solution developed by a Google employee. Uh, let's have shuttle buses instead. Uh, but those became sort of flashpoints, as it were, for anti-gentrification fervor. There was a study done that showed that wherever these these stops were, uh, housing prices increased, for example. Uh, and uh, and so um, the activists, and I, and I don't blame them, uh, they were very ingenious and came up with, with tactics to really draw attention to the Google buses. Uh, you know, I don't know whether they hated the Google buses as much as they said they did, but they knew that this was a really good way of drawing attention to the problems that they were facing. I could just imagine uh, if here in New York City, if Amazon got its way and and created its, uh, you know, uh, its space uh, here in Long Island City because they were going to have to provide shuttles, and I wonder what that, what even that was going to do. So uh, before we go further, I do want to go to the news of the day and then come back and talk about uh, our former mayor's uh, record. Uh, so here with the news of the day is our Celeste Katz-Marston. Thanks, Jeff. Hong Kong's district elections drew more than 2.9 million voters Sunday, with turnout rates exceeding 70% and long lines outside polling stations. The local elections come amid a time of extreme turmoil in Hong Kong, including violent clashes between anti-government, pro-democracy protesters and the police and military. The election involves challenges to Hong Kong's more than 450 district councillors, who typically handle quotidian matters such as trash pickup, not lawmaking. One professor from the Chinese University of Hong Kong told Voice of America that a strong performance by insurgents would show that residents of the former British colony backed democratic ideals despite the mass unrest. If the Democrats really score a landslide victory, it will uh, show very clearly that the public is in support of the movement despite recent violence. While protesters suspended activities to allow the elections to proceed, NPR reports that pro-Beijing political parties said that more than 100 councillors loyal to the capital had seen their offices vandalized or broken into ahead of the election, while a handful of pro-democracy candidates were physically attacked on the campaign trail. There were also reports of voter intimidation outside some polling stations. The results of the election are expected Monday morning, although early returns show gains for pan-democratic candidates. In national news, billionaire Mike Bloomberg officially leaped into the race for president Sunday after mulling the decision to join an already packed field of Democratic contenders who want to topple President Donald Trump. Bloomberg, 77, released a short promotional video that portrays him as having risen from middle-class roots to become a businessman, a three-term mayor of New York in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, and later an opponent of the gun lobby and fossil fuel companies. But now he sees a different kind of menace coming from Washington. So there's no stopping here. Because there's an America waiting to be rebuilt, where everyone without health insurance is guaranteed to get it, and everyone who likes theirs can go ahead and keep it where the wealthy will pay more in taxes and the struggling middle class will get their fair share. A week ago, Bloomberg used an appearance at the Christian Cultural Center in Brooklyn to apologize for having ramped up the NYPD's stop-and-frisk activities during his time at City Hall. Critics have long called stop-and-frisk racial profiling that particularly targets young black and Latino men. The news that Bloomberg is entering the 2020 race for president is ramping up interest in his track record. But reporters on the staff of his own media properties have been ordered to stop investigating his life and his finances. The Washington Post reports that the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News sent a stunning memo Sunday that says the prohibition on that coverage will also extend to the billionaire's rivals in the Democratic primary. Bloomberg will continue to report investigations of candidates by other, quote, credible news outlets, although which outlets will be identified as, quote, credible is not specified. Additionally, several top members of the media company's editorial desk will take a leave of absence to move over to the Bloomberg campaign. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff says there's already, quote, overwhelming evidence against President Trump in Congress's ongoing impeachment inquiry. I mean, there's more work to be done, but at the same time, we've already accumulated uh, quite overwhelming evidence that the president once again sought foreign interference in an election conditioned official acts, a White House meeting, 
that Ukraine desperately wanted, uh, as well as $400 million of bipartisan taxpayer funding to get these political investigations that he thought would help his re-election. So, uh, you know, we view this as urgent. We have a, another election in which the president is threatening more foreign interference. Uh, but at the same time, there are still other witnesses, other documents that we would like to obtain. Uh, but we're not willing to go the months and months and months of right. rope-a-dope in the courts, which administration would more than love for us to do. Schiff also told NBC's Chuck Todd that while he originally wanted to hear from the whistleblower who flagged Trump's conversation with Ukraine, Congress now has enough firsthand information about those talks. Demanding that the person testify now, Schiff said, would only, quote, gratify the president's desire for retribution. On Sunday, Trump continued to refer to the impeachment inquiry as a, quote, witch hunt. He also took a number of digs directly at Schiff, including tweeting, quote, the impeachment scam is driving Republican poll numbers up, up, up. Thank you, Shifty. In local news, Michael Palladino, head of the NYPD Detectives Union, plans to retire. That's according to the New York Post, which quotes the president of the Detectives Endowment Association as saying he'll put in his paperwork Monday morning. Palladino joined the force in 1979. He spent most of his career in precincts in the Bronx and became the union's top officer in 2004. He plans to go into private sector consulting. WBAI is supported entirely by listeners like you. Go to give2wbai.org to support free speech community radio. Give2, that's the number 2, wbai.org. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Now, back to City Watch with your host, Jeff Simmons. Thanks, Celeste. So uh, I'm joined in studio again by Matthew Sherman, author of the book Newcomers, Gentrification and Its Discontents. Uh, so uh, we been talking about Mayor Bloom, former Mayor Bloomberg uh, entering the race now officially today uh, to seek the presidency. Uh, you know, I would love for your insight into uh, Bloomberg's legacy on housing. Right. Well, Bloomberg certainly goosed the housing market uh, in a big way in the sense that uh, housing production really increased a great deal, both market rate and affordable under his watch. And you know, according to classical economics, that should be good for us, right? Uh, greater supply uh, should bring down prices, and we all should be able to live here. Unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, that didn't really happen. Uh, and uh, perhaps it's just because our city became more and more pop- popular. It did actually create more and more jobs, so there is good explanation for it. Um, but also, uh, we should make a distinction between affordable housing and gentrification. They're sort of similar, but they're not entirely the same. Gentrification is what happens within a particular neighborhood. And you can, uh, as happened in, in Williamsburg Greenpoint, you can build a lot of very fancy housing along the the waterfront uh, there, and yet it's still not bring down prices or prevent gentrification from happening in the rest of the neighborhood. In fact, it might even encourage it because here we have a great influx of people who can afford those luxury uh, apartments and they're going to affect everything uh, from the retail landscape to the housing prices elsewhere. Uh, So, uh, and in a way, Bloomberg's housing legacy was sort of countered uh, by uh, a a rivalry between his deputy mayor of economic development, Dan Doctoroff, uh, who was all in favor of increasing supply, really thought that as important to bring down prices or at least keep them under control. And Amanda Burden, who was his planning chairperson, planning department chairperson, I'm sorry, planning department uh, commissioner and chairperson of the planning commission who was very much a neighborhood preservationist along the lines of of Jane Jacobs earlier, right? She wanted to keep neighborhoods the way they they were. And so while some of the neighborhood got upzoned, that is, uh, the the zoning rules changed so that you could build higher and bigger, some of the other neighborhoods were downzoned, essentially. And it's just so happened that, in general, it was the wealthier neighborhoods that got downzoned and kept the way that they were. And a lot of the poorer neighborhoods, um, Jamaica, Queens, for example, South Bronx, uh, Williamsburg used to be pretty low income, uh, no longer is, of course, uh, all got upzoned. 
So uh, we were talking about Mayor Bloomberg, but just go back a few days to the fifth uh, presidential debate that took place in Atlanta. One of the questions that had been posed, this was directed at uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, uh, was about millions of working Americans uh, finding housing has become unaffordable, particularly in metropolitan areas. He was asked why he's the best person to fix the problem. And uh, in his response, he mentioned that uh, uh, that something that's going uh, we're talking about something that uh, we're not talking about something that is going on all over America, but it's gentrification and low income families being moved further and further out, compounding racial segregation. What his you know, what has government done in the past or is doing now, do you think, to address issues such as this? And what are some of the problems even that have been caused by government's response or lack of response over the decades? Right. Well, earlier we talked a little bit about the backlash against gentrification in the 1970s. And uh, during the Carter administration, that would have been from 1977 until 81, uh, there was some response, a Democrat in, in the Oval Office, uh, and thanks to some very strategic activism by, by one fellow in particular whom I discuss in the book, Conrad Weiler, he propelled actually Congress to take note, and Congress, uh, the Senate Banking Committee, held uh, a two-day hearing about gentrification. Uh, there were conferences around the the country. There was a, a book that uh, that that. Weiler wrote, HUD began doing, the Department of Housing and Urban Development began doing all sorts of studies looking at gentrification. Where, where is it happening? Why? How much is it? Et cetera, et cetera. You know how government works, though. They spend a lot of time studying these things. Uh, and then once they get around to doing something, it's the term is up. And it was made worse by the fact that there was the Iran hostage situation and Carter's presidency sort of went down the drain as a result of that. His his um, his political capital was spent. Uh, and just at the very end of his administration, HUD did come up with a policy statement, which basically said it was very mild, but it basically said anything that is caused uh, any gentrification that is caused by a government grant. Um, the community development block grant is, is one type of grant, for example, uh, should be mitigated in some sort of way. So, so city receives a grant, maybe builds and uh, maybe does a street streetscape project, right? Repairs the 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 sidewalks, puts in trees, art, public art, etc., and it makes housing prices go up around them. The city should do something to to prevent that from happening. Um, uh, and the other part of their policy statement was basically that they would give technical assistance to cities uh, who wanted it. <clears throat> the big problem here is that cities sort of, they don't really mind gentrification. I'm talking about the city hall, let's say, right? They think that this is great, that that wealthier people are moving back into the city. They're spiffing up these buildings themselves, uh, uh, other dignitaries come from out of town. They get to show them the spiffed up uh, Soho, the spiffed up Park Slope, et cetera, et cetera. It really seems like they're on the move. This is what's happening. This is our new um, our new shopping center, historic uh, renovation of Faneuil Hall in Boston, what have you. Uh, and so, cities are or city halls, sort of mayors are sort of conflicted, right? They don't they don't they there has to be a special mayor to care about the low income people who are being displaced by gentrification because in general they like the shiny new thing that uh, gentrifiers bring and it's not just low income i mean often it's um there's a racial imbalance and also the elderly that yes that's that's a good point absolutely so uh, I want to just read to you something. Uh, Justin Davidson in New York Magazine had done a piece on uh, uh, gentrification in August, uh, and he said that um, in practice, most policies that combat gentrification protect the status quo. They encourage people to stay where they are, and they slow the rate of demographic change. Do you agree with that? Well, yeah, I think that's what that's what any policy that 
to mitigate gentrification should do, right? Because the problem with gentrification is displacing people. So, of course, you want to keep people in place. I don't know exactly what he means by that. It, it is true that just like, uh, you know, Amanda Burden and the preservationists, the community preservationists part of this debate, uh, there can be this sense that we don't want change. And as a result, and you see this especially in San Francisco and California, uh, there's a really anti-density uh, movement out there. And uh, Brooklyn Heights, for example, the historic preservation movement uh, in New York City began in Brooklyn Heights. And and at the time, these people actually saw themselves as fighting back gentrification because they saw their old brownstones being torn down and, and apartment buildings five or six or eight story tall, eight stories tall being erected in their place. And they saw that as gentrification. But now I think we're sophisticated enough where we see, but that actually might be good for the city because it creates more housing supply. So we've got about five minutes left, a little less than that. Uh, looking ahead, you know, uh, obviously book was put to bed six months ago. I don't know. You know, I mean, the lead time in this, but like what's kind of happened since then? What are some of the signs you're seeing, some of the neighborhoods you think that are going to be uh, uh, kind of the, what do I call it, the touchstones, the touch points for this in the coming months or years? Well, you know, one of the interesting things is that uh, in, in the book, I really got the sense that San Francisco anti-gentrification activists were much more militant than were New York uh, anti-gentrification activists. But really in the past year and a half, I, I've submitted my manuscript, my first draft about a year and a half ago, believe it or not. And in that time, you've really seen a lot more activism uh, here in New York City. You've also actually seen uh, some some very good policies that I that I mentioned in the conclusion here that, that Mayor Bill de Blasio, say what you like about him, but he actually understands gentrification i think much better than mayor bloomberg ever did and and also probably any other previous mayor and, and when and when you say that what uh, what are the reasons for that well for one thing he uh uh, he appointed members to the Rent Guidelines Board who imposed rent freezes, for example. Uh, you know, there are lots of uh, caveats about what makes a good rent control system. But if you're talking about keeping people in their apartments and not letting them be priced out, rent control or rent stabilization does a pretty good job about that. Uh, so that was one big thing. He also understood that that representing tenants in housing court was a very important part of the battle as well. So there's actually a lot of attention uh, on de Blasio's tenure about his inclusionary housing, I'm sorry, inclusionary zoning, uh, meaning mandatory affordable housing whenever you you change the zoning in a particular neighborhood. But I actually think that... That that might even have a negative effect to some degree, but these other elements really approach gentrification in, in a really smart way. And, you know, now the toughest question for you, Matthew, if you're ready for it. What is next? Are any book readings? What's coming up? And how can also people learn more about you and the work that you do? Well, uh the week after next, I'll be heading to Los Angeles, San Francisco, and then following that, Chicago, and in January, Washington, D.C., giving some bookstore readings there. Uh, so if you have friends out there, uh, spread the word. You can find out more details on my schedule at MatthewSherman.com. My last name is sort of tricky. It's S-C-H-U-E-R-M-A-N, Matthew Sherman, S-C-H-U-E-R-M-A-N.com. I have an event schedule there. Hopefully I'll be back. I did do uh, one event already uh, here in New York City, and hopefully I'll be back doing something in Brooklyn early next year. And also, I think you were in Boston. Did I get that right? Yes, I went up to Boston as well, exactly. I should have sent Celeste over to, to that next time. Uh, I want to thank you, Matthew Sherman, author of Newcomers, Gentrification and Its Discontents, for joining me today in studio. I also want to thank our listeners. And if you haven't had a chance yet, I just want to remind you that we are in Fundraising Drive because of that one month that we didn't have our local programming. It wasn't just about not having our local programming, but we had just kicked off our fall fundraising drive, and we were taking taking in a good amount of money right before that rogue faction of Pacifica knocked us off the air and that put a real dent in our fundraising. It would be amazing if in the name of this show, City Watch, you could become a BAI buddy and give a sustaining uh, contribution every month of $10, $15, $20, 
anything that you could afford would be fantastic. Um, if you do this uh, in the name of this show, you can ask for a copy of one of the uh, 10 copies of the book that I had gotten, Waging Peace in Vietnam, U.S. Soldiers and Veterans Who Opposed the War. And you've got three easy ways that you can easily support us. You can go online to give to, that's the number two, wbai.org. You could call in to our pledge line at 516-620-3602, or you can text WBAI to the number 41444. If you're at home right now, you've enjoyed the show, or you enjoyed listening to Consabor Latino or any of our shows, if we mean something to you, it would mean something to us if you're able to support WBAI. It helps keep us on the air to provide you with commercial-free, non-corporate community radio. And we've been around for almost 60 years, and we want to be around for the next 60. You should tune in tomorrow. Uh, Joanna Fernandez is on from 7 to 8 a.m. on weekdays. This is a relatively new show with us, only on for the last few weeks. Good morning, Nueva York. Joining her is King Downing, a wonderful show to start your mornings every day, 7 to 8 a.m. Uh, this Thursday, I'm going to be back on Thanksgiving for three hours, starting at 5 o'clock with Driving Forces. Um, and I've already lined up a special guest uh, gift if you tune in, which I will uh, reveal on our Facebook page and then throughout the show. And then I'll be back here next Sunday on City Watch for World AIDS Day. Uh, I've got a top city official who is apparently going to be able to join us here on studio to talk about uh, the city's record and the state's record on combating the AIDS epidemic. And we're also going to be talking with a woman who once thought that living with AIDS was a death sentence, but she's uh, she doesn't think that way anymore. She's got an amazing story of resilience. If you missed any part of today's show, visit us at WBAI.org, go to Programs, and then Archives. This show will be up in about 10 minutes, and you can also follow me, Jeff Simmons, on uh, Twitter at Jack Heights, J-A-C-K-H-I-T-E-S, and CityWatch also can be found on Twitter at CityWatch, W-B-A-I, and on Facebook as well. Thank you so much for joining me today, and please stay with us for the Golden Age of Radio with Max Schmidt. When you think of the golden age of radio, you're bound to remember the performer whose hold on the heartstrings of America spanned almost three generations. Well, thank you, Jack. Yes, it's Max Schmied, and I'm your host for the golden age of radio. Sunday nights at 7 p.m. here on WBAI, presenting the finest in radio's history, comedy, drama, mysteries, science fiction. Won't you join me Sunday nights at 7 for the golden age of radio? Only here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. I hope you feel that way too. This is the mic check for Cat Radio Cafe. Uh, testing. Testing. Stay tuned for Cat Radio Cafe Sunday night at 11 on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. The Displaced Playwright on Sunday, November 24th. We are joined by artist Peter McGowell on his memoir, I've Seen the Future and I'm Not Going, the art scene in downtown New York in the 1980s. And more poems from the late Brooklyn poet. Harvey Shapiro. And in the next hour of Cat Radio Cafe... A panel discussion on snobbery. Sunday night at 11 on WBAI Cat Radio Cafe. And remember our slogan... The cats like snobs. If they look like fish.
Hello, I'm David Rothenberg, and I'm the oldest person of any room I enter, unless Malachi McCord is already plopped down in the room. So the two of us are getting together to have a conversation. And if you want to eavesdrop on it, and we'll be departing some wisdom, it'll cost you $25. But all the money's going to this cockamamie station, WBAI, which you might have heard could use a dollar or two. Conversation with Malachi and David will be at the Commons, the performance space below WBAI's Crystal Studios at 388 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. The gathering will be on Sunday, December 8th at 2 o'clock. For ticket reservations, email me at dprfortune at hotmail.com. Leave your phone number and I'll call you back. So once again, it's Sunday, December 8th. At 2 o'clock, 388 Atlantic Avenue, and you can email me at dprfortune at hotmail.com. Hi, this is Jerry Stiller. You are listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Where are my keys? Anybody see my keys? Who took my keys? 